6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of 1 John, chapter 3. Well, we are studying 1 John, chapter 3, and we never want to enter the Word of God without prayer. So let's bow our hearts for a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for who you are, and we thank you for going to such extremes on our behalf. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. We do pray, Father, that you would open our hearts and lives to your word, that you help each of us become more effective stewards of the opportunities before us as we commit this hour and ourselves into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord, our Savior, our coming King. Amen. Okay, we're in session six of eight, and we're exploring 1 John chapter 3. And uh, this is about pretenders. 1 John 3 is all about counterfeit Christians. In fact, in verse 10, he's going to call them the children of the devil. Wow. Now, the true child of God practices righteousness, loves other Christians despite their differences. That may come as a shock to some of our friends, okay? 1 John 3, the first 10 verses, deals with the first group, the true child of God that practices righteousness, right? The second part of this chapter deals with the second group here, those that love other Christians despite their differences. Chapter 4 will really deal with false teachers. We'll defer some of that. But the first is not a new theme. First... 1 John chapter 1 and 2 dealt with these. But in 1 John 3, the, the whole approach is going to be a little different. In the earlier chapters, the focus was on fellowship, chapters 1 and 2. But in 1 John 3, 1 to 5, the emphasis is on sonship. The whole epistle is a family matter. Most epistles are church epistles. This one's a little different. This is more intimate. This is a family epistle. But the first couple of chapters were on fellowship, this chapter will be on sonship, our, our position in the family, right? born of God, the barren ones. We ran into that earlier. And the, we, you can see this thread all the way through, of course. There are three reasons for a holy life. God the Father loves us. That's one of the three reasons. The first three verses will focus on that. God the Son died for us. That's the next few verses. And God the Holy Spirit lives in us, and that's the next few verses. So those are three key reasons. Interestingly, isomorphic, if you will, with the Godhead. The first group is that the Father loves us. So let's take a look at it. 1 John 3, verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Now why are we surprised that we get treated so poorly sometimes. Remember how they treated our king. 
Now, this can be translated, behold, what peculiar out-of-this-world kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us. And while we were His enemies, God loved us and sent His Son to die for us. That's staggering. As you, as you see the movie The Passion, you get a glimpse, perhaps, of, of the Passion of Christ. But the thing you can't capture even in a movie would be the Passion of the Father. Can you imagine a father loving you that much that he would allow his son to be insulted, spit upon, and torn in pieces, and, and, and killed, executed? Wow. Many translators add a phrase to 1 John 3, 1, that we should be called the sons of God, and we are. <laughs> and uh, they can infer that from the Greek, but I won't get into all that. Sons of God. That's a term that has very specific, uh, pre precise meaning in the Scripture. And uh, the, the, it's not simply a high-sounding phrase. It's a very critical reality. You won't understand Genesis chapter 6 and the flood of Noah unless you understand what the Benaiha Elohim, the sons of God phrase means. It refers to a direct creation of God. That term, that Hebrew term in the Old Testament is always used of angels because they were a direct creation of God. They were created even before the earth was. Okay? So that's the, 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 they were angels that are, are part of the, the thing there. In fact, when you get to the Gospel of, of uh, John, chapter 1, verse 11, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. But as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become the sons of God. The term there is used. Why? Because it's a new creation. You and I are not sons of God in the natural. We're sons of Adam. We're sons of Adam. Adam was a direct creation of God. His offspring were sons of Adam. And that's where we are in our Adamic nature. When we accept Christ, there is a new creation. He never, he never heals a, broke, a, a, a heart. He replaces it. Our, our, our heart is incurably wicked, Jeremiah tells us. No, it's a, so the, the point is there's a new creation. That's why this born again is not just a phrase. It's a theological reality. The sons of God is a term. Here, it, it's fairly rare in its New Testament emphasis. But here's one of the places. And, of course, in John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12 is another place um, that it's really drawing what... what some scholars would call an Old Testament idiom, if you will. But we should not expect the world to understand this thrilling relationship we enjoy, because they don't understand God, let alone this relationship. Only a person who knows God through Christ can fully appreciate what it means to be called a child of God. Don't get caught up in the brotherhood of man thing. That's humanism. Be Watch out for that. Be careful of that kind of, of labeling. But here's, people ask me, What's one of your favorite verses in the Bible? And there's not just a few of these. There's a handful. But this is among them. We're going to spend a little time on verse 2. Don't panic. We're not going to spend that much time on each of the verses in this chapter. But I love verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. Verse, the, the first verse told us what we are. Verse 2 tells us what we shall be. What on earth is that? 
Are we there yet? Not quite. But what will we be? Now, this was mentioned back in chapter 2 as an incentive for holy living, but now it's going to be elaborated on. Now, you cannot understand this verse without a mathematical physics background. So are you ready? (laughs) And I'm exaggerating just a little bit, of course. That when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as is. This remarkable statement requires an understanding of hyperspaces. Space, and what's that? That's a fancy word for spaces of more than three dimensions. Okay? So let's back up and review some stuff that you probably remember from our Learn the Bible in 24-hour summary. Stretching the heavens, the fabric of space. We think of space as an empty vacuum that's very naive and uninformed. The Scripture says, speaks of God who alone stretches out the heavens. Is that just a metaphor? Stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Stretching out heavens like a curtain spreads out like a tent to dwell in. Isaiah 40. He has stretched out the heavens in Jeremiah 10. The Lord who stretched... This phrase occurs throughout the Scripture. Is it just a poetical phrase? Or is it an insight into physics that will baffle our scientists even to this day? Okay. I could go on and on, as you can imagine, that this stretching the heavens is all through the Scripture. Space, first of all, we know today is not an empty vacuum. Any of you radio hams? Any radio hams here? You know that space has an impedance. You've got to match for an antenna and so forth. No. Space can be torn, Isaiah tells us. It can be worn out like a garment in Psalm 102. Space can be shaken, Really? Hebrews, Haggai, and Isaiah all make that uh, expression. Space can be burnt up, Peter warns us. You want to talk about global warming, Peter has a verse on that for you. (laughs) It can split apart like a scroll in Revelation 6. Is that just a figure of speech? It can be rolled up like a mantle or a scroll in Hebrews and Isaiah. Now that gives us a clue here to think through a little bit. What do you mean rolled up? There must be some dimension in which space must be thin in order to be rolled, right? Space can be bent, we're told. Well, if that's the case, there must be a direction in which it can be bent toward. See, those words carry some insights here. So this all implies there must be an additional spatial dimension than the ones that we directly experience in order for it to have those properties. Well, we see Paul tells us that in Ephesians. Many people miss this in Ephesians 3, verse 17 and 19. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that ye, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ and so on. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you pick up on that? How many are there? Four. Four dimensions. Really? Really? How did Paul know? Was he a physicist? I don't think so. Or is this one of these little fingerprints of the Holy Spirit editing the text for us? Be able to comprehend the breadth, okay, the platos in the Greek, suggesting great extent. That can be time as well as space. Length, the the mikos, the length. And depth, uh, bathos. And height, the uh, upsos. But the main point is there are four of these things. That's kind of interesting. Four-dimensional space. That's a big discovery of 20th century science. They should have checked with Paul a long time ago. But we're going to talk about hyperdimensions. These are dimensions, that's a term that mathematicians would use, of spaces with more than three dimensions. 
we are in a hyperspace. We know we have four here, right? We're just, we've just moved beyond Euclid. In school, you learned what was called Euclidean geometry. That's something that uh, uh, is three, or three dimensions. In 1854, George Riemann gave the most important mathematical lecture in history. On June 10th of that year, he introduced metric tensors. It took 60 years for them to be applied practically, and that's what Einstein used to develop his four-dimensional space-time that we know as the theory of relativity. And then uh, he, he, Einstein went to his death frustrated because he couldn't reconcile certain aspects of physics, but 60 years later, doing exactly what Einstein... See, Einstein realized that space couldn't be three-dimensional. So he added, by going one more dimension, to solve his problem. If he'd taken that same methodology a little further, as Kaluza-Klein did in the, 50, in the 50s, to reconcile light and supergravity, he, would have, he wouldn't have gone to his death so frustrated. And in 1963, Yang Mills took it even further, reconciling electromagnetic and both the nuclear forces, both weak and strong nuclear forces. And the current theory, in 19, from 1984 on, is that we have not four, ten dimensions. And... Uh, uh, super strings, and there's all kinds of variations of that. But what's interesting, if you do your historical homework, you'll discover that a, a Hebrew sage by the name of Nachmanides, he wrote in the 13th century, he concluded from his study of the book of Genesis that it has ten dimensions, and that only four are knowable. And he published that in 1263. Now why am I making reference to this? Well, the great discovery of particle physicists in the 20th century, using atomic accelerators, is that they've discovered that we, have, we live in ten dimensions. Four of them are directly measurable, three spatial dimensions and time. Six of them are curled in less than 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, smaller than a wavelength of light, thus are inferable only by indirect means, but we can confirm their, their, their uh, existence by those indirect means. So they, by spending millions of dollars on atomic accelerators, we've learned what Nachmanides did by doing his homework in the book of Genesis. But there's a, I want to talk a little bit about hyperspaces just to give you a flavor of this. But there are only two kinds of people seem to be able to deal with hyperspace. And that's, of course, mathematicians with special training and small children. Okay? They have no trouble with this at all. But we, instead of trying to take you to four and five dimensions without elaborate props and things, we can gain a lot of insight by going in the other direction. Imagining a world with only two dimensions. And we're indebted to Edwin Abbott back in 1906 who developed this approach to understanding. I, want to I was going to introduce you to two of my friends. The two friends I want to introduce you to, before I introduce them to you, I want you to have compassion because they suffer from a very serious handicap. Because they live in only two dimensions. And it's Mr. and Mrs. Flat. And I want you to imagine them in a two-dimensional world, Okay. Now let's assume that we have two pieces of that two-dimensional world. Mrs. Flat, there's no way she can imagine getting to Mr. Flat in her world because she lives only in two dimensions. But if I come along as a three-dimensional being, I can pick her up and put her in the other one, and from her point of view, a miracle's taken place. She has no ability to... Uh, no capacity to imagine a third dimension. She only knows two dimensions. Get the picture? So you got an insight. What other insights might we get? Well, first of all, they, I, I can put my finger one millionth of an inch away from each of them, no matter where they are. 
my proximity to them is totally independent of the distance between them. Why? Because I have another dimensionality. Wow. So we're getting some insights here perhaps, huh? If I as a three-dimensional being poke my finger through their two-dimensional universe, what do they see? A dot that becomes a circle and then it disappears, right? Putting another way, if a ball passes through, what is it? It's a dot, becomes a circle. In other words, they only perceive that which is discernible within their own dimensionality. Now, let's now shift to a three-dimensional world. We're a group of disciples in an upper room. The room has a floor, a ceiling, and four walls. It's a six-sided figure, right? Floor, ceiling, four walls. All the doors and windows are locked. And we get a visitor who shows up. Well, he's a spirit. No, he isn't. He challenges that. Handle me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see me have. And yet, so he's tangible, palpable. And yet, he can enter and leave a six-sided space without penetrating any of the six sides. See, he's hyperdimensional. Now, see, we, need, we do well to get a little bit of perspective of what we call reality. And I'll represent us by the Vitruvian man of uh, da Vinci, just idiomatically here. And I want to talk about size. Larger than us or smaller than us? Larger going to the right, smaller going to the left here, okay? In terms of largeness, see, there's... We discovered there's an elusive, there's a concept of mathematics that we cannot find physically. That's infinity. On the large size, we discover that in the sense of largeness, the universe is finite. The great discovery of 20th century science is that our, from astronomy and physics and so forth, that our universe is not infinite. It's very big and may be expanding, but it's finite. That's staggering its implication. That's why it had a beginning. And that gives rise to the conjectures called Big Bang Theories and what have you. Okay, that is something we can sort of deal with. Let's go the other way. Let's talk, let's talk about smallness. If we go to smallness here, that's the field of quantum physics, subatomic particles. And we discover something very disturbing, that there's a limit to smallness, that length, mass, energy, and time are made up of indivisible units called quanta. If you split one of those, it loses locality. It's suddenly everywhere at one time. What's that mean? Well, turn, let's talk a little bit about that. You've all seen the little model of an atom in your, in your books. You have a nucleus and you have an electron spinning. That's one way to represent it, of course. We call it a nucleus and we have an electron. Take the simplest atom we know, a hydrogen atom. Right? We're together so far. This is obviously not the scale. We know that the atom is about 10 to the minus 8 centimeters. Point zero 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 eight zeros, you know, one centimeter. Nucleus is even much, much uh, smaller than that. The ratio of the atom to its nucleus is one part, uh, I'll put it the other way around, is that the nucleus is one part in 10 to the fifth. What does all that mean? Well, the if you made, the, if you want to make a model of this, and you make use a golf ball for the nucleus, the electron will be three miles away. So if you're going to build one of these in your garage, you better you got a problem. Okay, just a model of it. The point I want you to get across is that the ratio of the the size of the golf ball to the total is 
one part in 100,000. We're together so far? Just broad terms here? Okay. But that ratio is a linear relationship, right? To get an area, you have to square it. To get a volume, you have to cube it. So the volumetric ratio of this atom is 10 to the 5th cubed, or saying it another way, 10 to the 15th. Let me, let me uh, point out that that ratio is the same ratio as one second has to 30 million years. We're dealing with, that's why scientists use these exponential, that's a way of representing very large numbers. I'm, ra- I'm, re- I'm creating a, a this, the ratio of the nucleus to the atom is the same ratio as one second has to 30 million years. What does that mean? I have a, pl- a podium up here. You say, that's solid, okay? And I say, this is solid. And Gary says, no, it isn't. It doesn't even exist there. Is it, is it, it's all empty space. He is more correct than I am by the same ratio. It's more like empty space than it is solid by a ratio of one second to 30 million years. It's empty. It's an illusion. In fact, it's an electrical simulation. Really. So... Let's, go, let's talk about this another way. If I take a, a, a line, I can cut that in half, right? No problem. I can take the half of that, and I can cut it in half, right? Now, you would think I could do that forever. Take the half, and, and, and so forth. Go smaller and smaller. you think I could do that, at least conceptually, forever. No, it turns out I can't. When I get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters and attempt to cut that in half, it loses a property called by physicists, locality. We now discover and have proven in the laboratory that every photon in the universe knows exactly what every other photon is exhibiting. They're linked in a strange way. And that's, that, lead, that leads to this, uh, that they lose locality. There's a Planck length of 33 centimeters, a Planck time and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. I think that's what a twinkle of an eye is, by the way. Not a blink, a twinkle. Anyway... Uh, it's the speed of light going through that small... Anyway, so if we take this thing, what we've said, on the large size, we know we have finite, finiteness. On the small size, we have finiteness. In other words, there's nothing infinitely small and nothing infinitely large. We're, we find ourselves in a reality that is simulated. It isn't a real reality. And uh, now, if you... Uh, we are in a digital simulation. And that discovery is very disturbing. In the Scientific American, in June of 2005, they had an article which concludes that our universe is but a shadow of a larger reality. That's their words, not mine. But that's exactly what the Bible has been saying all along. Now, a photograph is a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. If I give you a picture of Gary, you'll recognize him in the picture but it's still a representation, a two-dimensional representation of a three-dimensional object. You say, well, I can get a hologram. That's like a window into a three-dimensional space. Well, we're getting somewhere here. In holography, we take a piece of photograph, we illuminate photograph with a laser, and we take a reference beam and reflect it off that and record the way those two beams interfere. And what we gain on that thing is a is the collection of the interference patterns of the direct light and the reflected light. And when you 
look at it in, in regular light, it looks like a darkroom mistake. It's a foggy piece of film. When you illuminate it with a laser that created it, it becomes a window, a three-dimensional. It's actually a Fourier transform of that image. And it's like a window in, uh, 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 in, through space. And depending what you, which way you look at it, you're looking into a three-dimensional space. But even that, even a hologram, is a th- is a representation three dimension a representation of a three dimensional space. But now let's go having all that palaver behind you. Let's take a look at First John three two one more time carefully. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when He, who's that He? Jesus. When He shall appear, we shall be like Him. How do we know that? Before, Because we will see Him as He is. Now, we don't know how many dimensions Jesus enjoys right now. We know that it's more than 11 because that's the only way He could mathematically get in and out of a six-sided sphere. That's another... That's, that's just a property that he, apparent, he has at least that, maybe much more. But here's the point. Whatever He enjoys, we will be like Him. Why? Because we're going to see Him as He is. We're not going to see a three-dimensional representation of a four-dimensional object. We're not going to see a ten-dimensional representation of an eleven-dimensional object. No. Whatever whatever He enjoys, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We're going to apparently enjoy the same dimensionality. Wow is right. And that's... uh, what uh, Paul says in uh, Romans, the redemption of our body, the glorification. We have no grasp of what that all means, but we're getting a glimpse of it here through John's epistle. That when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Wow. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the books of 123 John. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.